Welcome to the Alaska Journey Podcast. My name is Jamin Gerker. I'm a realtor in South Central Alaska, and my mission is to help people to build an intentional and significant legacy for themselves and their families. And in today's episode, we have a very special guest. She is a one of the most decorated athletes in Native sports history in the state of Alaska with more than 100 medals with the WEIO, the World Eskimo Indian Olympics and the Arctic Winter Games and the Native Youth Olympics as well. She became one of Native Sports' most passionate and affectionate ambassadors after she stopped competing, and she has served as a board member and chairwoman for the WEIO, which, under her direction, ran smoothly and on time. And she also has served as a lead official at the Native Youth Olympics and travels the state teaching children about the games. So without further ado, let me go ahead and introduce Nicole Johnson. Thank you very much, Damon. <laughs> Good to have you. Good to have you. So I guess let's, uh, let's go and start with this. Um, I'm assuming most listeners might not be very familiar with the, you know, the World Eskimo Indian Olympics or the Native Youth Olympics for that matter. Um, can you go ahead and start off by maybe just giving us a bit of a history on kind of the development of it and what all the events are? Sure. Um, World Eskimo Indian Olympics and Native Youth Olympics are both competitions of traditional Native games of the people of the North. So primarily the indigenous peoples all the way throughout the North in Alaska, Canada, Greenland, and Siberia. And these are games that have been played literally for hundreds, if not thousands of years, to help keep their people in shape and to build the skills that they needed for everyday survival. So, for example, when they went hunting, they couldn't just go out their back door and, and, and shoot an animal. Um, they usually had to move with the seasons. So their community had to be strong and smart and had to know how to survive in the environment to get them from one season to the next. And these games were played to help develop those skills needed for everyday survival. And those games were developed now into games of competition to carry on that spirit of of tradition and culture and survival Um, and to teach survival skills still to this day. So most of the games build strength, endurance, agility, concentration, um, teach you how to deal with pain. um, And the biggest, biggest, I guess, the most incredible thing about these games is the sportsmanship aspect because everybody competes – Um, against each other but mostly they're competing against themselves so it's not like a typical competition where you would see teams competing against each other for basketball or individual track and field games where they're cheering on you know just their team members traditionally you had to survive with the help of your community and the rest of your village and you wanted to be strong enough to carry a load and in the event that you were hunting with somebody you wanted them to be just as strong as you so you always encourage them to work as hard if not harder 
to set those goals so you could rely on them and they could rely on you. And that's built into our traditional Native games and the spirit of our competition. Man, that's fascinating because, I mean, I'm glad you brought the sportsman aspect of it up because, I mean, a lot of the, I mean, I'm going to pick kind of on track and field because that's just, just what I'm familiar with. But, I mean, obviously originated over in Greece, and those games are very oriented towards Warren obviously beating someone on a, on a one-to-one basis. And, I mean, the sport, they do have great sportsmanship there, but it's not it's not necessarily it's a zero-sum game in right. those like my win is going to be your loss but, right but yeah with more of the native games it sounds like there's much more of a sense of you know obviously everybody wants to wants to be the best of whatever they're doing but there's also kind of a community aspect to it of we're all going to win at the end of the day here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the, the, the whole idea. It is a huge community of athletes, coaches, officials, and spectators. We have spectators that come and they just have heard about it or they make plans and they come every, every year um, to watch the World Eskimo Olympics or watch uh, the Native Youth Olympics. And because it's such a special environment watching athletes competing each other, helping each other, helping their fellow competitor kick higher, jump further, or last longer in an event um, is just not something that you normally see in, in everyday competition these days. And that's the biggest draw. Um, I have had records off and on between 1982 until I stopped competing in 2004, and I still have one record that hasn't been broke. But it's been a great experience to watch my records uh, be broke over the years, and it's and I'm right there with those athletes, encouraging them. Come on, you can do this. You've got it. Um, got to break my record. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to see you break my record. You know and because I'm also into coaching, I'm also coaching those athletes, and I may coach a fellow competitor from another team um, or help their coach coach their athletes. And that's all part of what our Native games are about. Man, that's, that's so awesome. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that might sound strange to some people, but I, I totally get it. I mean, I um, held my 10,000-meter uh, record at uh, my alma mater for a number of years but and I mean I was really wanting to to kind of coach and be a part of the next person who was going to be able to come in and break that but and I heard a quote the other day it was the people who are really successful are the ones who have the mindset of success or excellence is going to begin with me and I want it to continue after that whereas people who aren't are pretty much like I want to be the end-all, be-all standard, and it stops right there. <laughs> right, right. And we also have um, some competitors who stop competing so other athletes can come in and build up that that urge and that drive to beat that person's record, where that person could still be competing to this day, but they take a step back to let that next generation or that uh, 
that athlete who might be four or five or six years younger than them not you know allow them to compete to to get that number that they're aiming for with the encouragement of the of the record holder um, we see that happen a lot and that's it's that's a unique aspect also a unique aspect of our games wow that's that's pretty incredible yeah you're uh, you're not going to see that in very many sports no no <laughs> but you got to think you know even in the north today um, not so much maybe here in the Anchorage area because we have so many amenities. Um, in the north where I'm going to say central Alaska and, and, and up where their seasons are so much shorter. Our summers in the north are basically mid-June until uh, maybe mid-September. And before that, the ice is broken up and flowing down the rivers until early June and then they start to freeze up usually around mid-September from I would say the Fairbanks line north right and to survive even in the environment today you don't want to piss off anybody because you might be on your snow machine or in your boat or hunting somewhere and uh, one of your machines breaks down and you still are going to need to rely on your skills to survive and hopefully somebody's going to come by and help you and if you're not a part of the community you're less likely to get that help <laughs> so still to this day those those rules still apply you know you're part of the community you try to be as helpful as you can and that way you can um you can thrive right right well, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. I was actually speaking with a resident of Kodiak just um, you know, about a month or so ago, and that was one thing that she really brought up that, you know, in this small of a community, you better not be making enemies. And like right. it's, it's really, really your small team or your small community against the elements, and you better make good with, with everybody there. Well, and that's a unique aspect about Alaska, too. So much of our residents are off of the road system and the only way to get there is by boat snow machine in the winter time or flying in and you're stuck with the people that you live around in your community <clears throat> yeah there's always going to be politics but usually you can leave those things on the table when you walk out of the room um, for the benefit right. of the community and for your families and if you can't it's 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 tough i mean it's really tough you won't be a part of that community for very long i can't imagine yeah <laughs> all right so i think we've got like two questions in here so <laughs> <laughs> so let me let's go ahead and circle back a little bit then okay. we're kind of talking about the origins of of the events and you mentioned like the endurance the focus the the strength what are the events i guess like how many of them are there first off so there's literally hundreds of games okay and they kind of pick the events that are going to be the most popular for spectators and for the athletes at the native youth olympics which there are two different divisions there's a junior division which is for grades uh, one through six and then in that junior division it's broken up into three age groups our first and second graders do three events. Our third and fourth graders do three events. 
and our fifth and sixth graders do four events. And at each age group level, the events get a little bit harder. Um, and that's our competition for first through sixth grade. And then our seventh through twelfth graders is one division of open events. And there are 10 events that each athlete can compete in. Now for our communities, um, for example, our school districts will supply a team from their district and it's one boy and one girl per event. Um, and then if they don't have a district communities, then individual schools can also compete. Some of the games that they compete in are the kneel jump, which is an event where you start by kneeling on the floor, your feet are flat behind you, um, your knees are behind a line, and the object is to try to jump as far forward as you can, landing on your feet to maintain your balance. So from a kneeling position, you throw your arms up and forward, pull your knees up, and then throw your feet out, kind of like a long jump to land. But you're starting from your knees. But though. you're starting from your knees. And the object is to go as far as you can, uh, landing, maintaining balance until the measurement can be taken from the line to the heel that is nearest to the line. And our junior kids, uh, which are first and second graders, they'll jump between uh, maybe 23 and 30 inches. And then we go up to seventh through 12th grade, um, and they will jump between our top five girls will jump between 37 and maybe 45 48 inches our top five male athletes will jump between 45 and uh, maybe 60 uh, maybe 50, 50 to 60 inches but the records um, for all of our native games events for the nail jump for the girls is 52 and a half inches and then for our guys is 67 inches. So from a kneeling position, jumping that far Six and landing. Feet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 67, well, five feet, seven inches, 67 inches. Right. Yeah. So that's, uh, that one, I've seen both of those records broke, um, and those were pretty, pretty amazing feats. And that game, for example, was played to help develop the skills hunters needed for jumping up quickly, getting away from something if they're butchering on the ice or they're butchering uh, on the tundra, or if the ice starts to break up below them and they're, they need to jump up quickly and move. So the nil jump was created. It's a very explosive action um, for getting up. Uh, another one of the events is the Eskimo stick pull. And this one I think is one of the coolest and it's two athletes sit facing each other with the soles of their feet together and their knees are bent at a at a right angle or about uh, 45 no 90 90 degrees and um, a stick is placed above their toes then one athlete grabs the stick in the center and then their opponent grabs right alongside and then on a signal they have to try to pull the stick away from their opponent or pull their opponent up and off balance. So while they're pulling, they're not allowed to jerk, twist, or re-grip the stick. And if they're ath if you fall over when you're pulling, you also lose that pull. So the idea behind that game was to develop the skills hunters needed for pulling seals out of the water up onto the ice. So if you lost your grip, you'd lose. If you fall over, you lose. 
if you um, uh, jerk, you may end up hurting something yourself, or if you're pulling against an opponent, you may end up hurting your opponent. So you're not wanting to jerk on on the stick either. And it really, when you see the game and you visualize uh, a hunter pulling a seal out of the water up onto the ice or into the boat, it really makes a lot of sense why these games or why that particular game was played. And then uh, another game is called the seal hop, and it's an athlete that uh, is up in a plank position for our girls and our, and our uh, juniors. They're on their hands and toes, and they hop in a continuous little hops for as long and as far as they can, imitating the motion of a seal. And then to make it a little bit harder for our senior athletes, our male athletes in seventh through 12th grade, they have to hop parallel to the floor in a down push-up position as if they were doing a tricep push-up. So their arms are tight up against their body and then they pull and scoot on just their their first knuckles and their toes, um, and their arms move like a like a locomotive uh, on a train, like the arms on the trains uh, where piston. the wheels are, huh? The uh, piston. Yeah, the piston going around and around, and they're pushing and pulling as they're hopping, and that is definitely a little more like a seal hopping on the ice. And they would use the seal hop to sneak up on seals that were taking naps on the ice, carrying their harpoons on their back. And when they would get close enough to the seals, they could, uh, or a seal, they would take their harpoon off their back, and that's how they'd get a seal. I can see all these are very, very practical yeah. kind of games. And <laughs> that's just three of the games. Um, some of the most common or most uh, popular games are the high kicking events. Um, the two foot high kick, which is the game that I held the record in for 25 years. Um, you jump off of two feet, you kick a ball that is suspended in the air, and then you land on both feet. And each time the round is completed, the ball gets higher and higher until you have the last person who kicks the ball at the highest mark from the floor. And that uh, game was used traditionally as a signal, for example, a long distance form of communication. So if hunters were off in the distance hunting, um, if hunters were off hunting, they would send a messenger back towards the village. And because the north is very flat and you can see for, for very long ways, um, they would find a high spot and do the two-foot high kick. And somebody from the community or the camp would see the messenger do the two-foot high kick a mile away or so and could then relay that message to the community that the hunters had been unsuccessful. Um, the one-foot high kick would be a successful hunting signal and that would be the athlete or the messenger would jump off of two feet kick one foot up in the air and then land on the same foot that they kick with uh, for competition and that one is the most popular event everybody loves to watch that one because that is the event that the athletes go the highest in <coughs> um, for example the record for the one foot high kick um, at any sporting, native sporting event is nine feet, nine inches. 
So that's just, (laughs) if you think about it, that's only three inches below a basketball rim. So they jumped off of two feet. He kicked the ball that was suspended at nine feet, nine inches, and then lands on the same foot that he kicked with. How are they able, like, maybe I'm just not thinking of the kinetics here correctly. This is probably going off track, but how are they able to jump so much higher with one, the one leg kick versus the two leg kick? Um, I think it's, it's just, uh, it's easier to extend one leg up higher than, than, than two. Okay. Um, when I was competing for some reason, the highest I could ever kick in the one foot high kick was seven feet. But I could kick six feet, six inches in the two foot high kick all day long. And that was my record. But I could I could only go six inches higher. Where the guy's record is uh, eight feet, eight inches for the two foot high kick and nine feet, nine inches for the one foot high kick. So there's a whole nother foot there. Um, granted, for me, I'm only five feet tall. Most of my competitors are usually five or six inches taller than I am. A little and, lankier. <laughs> and a little bit lankier. Yeah, I'm pretty stout um, and was all the way through my competitive years. Um, but I could always would say to myself, gosh, I wish I was just a few more inches taller. Maybe I could kick a few more inches higher. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I was happy. I mean, I held the two-foot high kick record um, at six feet, six inches from 1989 until 2014. And then I still hold an Arctic Winter Games record at six feet, five inches. Um, And we haven't really talked about Arctic Winter Games, but that's uh, another Native sporting event that is held every two years throughout different communities in the north. Um, So, for example... In 2018, uh, we were in the Northwest Territories. I was an official at the Native Sporting event there. Um, 2020, unfortunately, it was supposed to be in Whitehorse, and that, because of COVID, was... <laughs> we know how that uh, went. Yeah, yeah, we know how that went. <laughs> in 2022, it's scheduled to be in Fort McMurray, North, Northern Alberta. Um, that'll be the second time it's been hosted there. That's pretty exciting to have athletes that come from all over Alaska, Canada, Greenland, and Siberia. It's the only event where you have literally the top male and female athletes from all of the communities throughout the North competing against each other. So the main, the biggest goal for athletes is Arctic Winter Games. Um, And not just because of the competition, it's building those relationships with other athletes throughout the other communities who love the sport just as much as you do and want to do and 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 you can push you push each other so much harder at at arctic winter games because you know you have to be your best and work your hardest and and watching athletes that are um competing against each other where some of them don't even speak english they still speak their um their language from the north, uh, Inuktitut or uh, Inuit or Greenlandic, um, or from Yamal, the Nets. Um, 
they have athletes that come over that speak just uh, some of them speak Russian and some of them speak their, their native language from from their communities but they're still coaching each other you know helping each other jump higher further um, it's really a, a special occasion seeing that man that's so cool <laughs> it is really cool I'm lucky enough to be able to uh, experience and stay as part of in of that native community or native sports community um, and I'm hoping that I can stay with the communities as this community for a lot longer <laughs> i mean you're in the <clears throat> hall of fame so <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel like that's something i kind of cheated you on in the bio but yes hall of famer and um ton of records too so let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your i guess your your journey from when you started initially with the sporks we kind of know what it is now and we know that obviously you, you did very well <laughs> by all accounts. <laughs> so I guess what was the, the journey that that you went about to get there? So um, just a little history. My dad was born and raised in a very small community, uh, and he is a Nupiak. Um, also, I don't mind. I, I'm an Eskimo. My dad was an Eskimo. We wore T-shirts that said Eskimo power on them. Um, I'm not offended by that word. Um, and I would say probably 95% of us are not offended by that word. Um, but it was, uh, my dad was raised or born in a small community and left when he was six years old into a little bit larger community and then eventually moved into another larger community and was fortunate enough to work his way through college and ended up living in, in uh, Portland, Oregon, then met my mother on a business trip in Peoria, Illinois. And when I was seven, we moved to back to Alaska. Um, I always knew that I was Eskimo and half white. And growing up out in the lower 48, as we call it, um, was uh, an experience because I got to be around a lot of Indian uh, people. And we went to powwows because my dad was kind of working in that area. But I always knew that I was different because I wasn't, didn't quite look like everybody else, but knew that my dad was also Eskimo, so I knew I was Eskimo too. So when we moved to Alaska when I was seven, um, I'm not going to say I didn't feel like I didn't fit in, in in Oregon, but as soon as we moved to Alaska to the community of Nome, where there were other people who looked just like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was really quite an experience to feel like I f- was where I was supposed to be. And they played, everybody, nobody cared about who you were or where you came from. They were just like, oh, there's somebody new here. Let's play some games. So I first learned how to play a game that we call Eskimo baseball. And in... Alaska, our summers are long, our days are long. So I can remember that we played Eskimo baseball until, geez, midnight, one, two, or three o'clock in the morning sometimes on the streets, you know? And the parents didn't care because they knew where we were. We were right outside the door, you know? And sometimes we were quiet, sometimes we were noisy. And if we got too noisy, somebody would holler at us, tell it's time for you guys to go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, 
And my neighbors became really good friends, and I went to church with them one day, and this was in fifth grade. And after church, we had snacks and then played some games in the little community room um, of the church. And that was the first time I was exposed to actual Alaska, to native games. Um, and that was the first time I ever did the two-foot high kick. And I was told that I was a natural and that when I got into school, into high school, I needed to do it, to do the two-foot high kick. And I thought, oh, okay, well, cool, this is fun. This is, this is pretty neat. Um, but we also had all kinds of different games growing up uh, in Nome. There were a lot of activities, physical activities for us to do. We had softball and basketball and ice skating and hockey and, and a, on a community rink where there was a, we called it the warm-up shack. Um, you could go in there and rent and then also warm up in the shack Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when you were done skating or your feet got too cold. Um, so I was really lucky growing up and having the opportunities of all kinds of different sports, gymnastics, ballet, um, for our community after schools activities. But when I got into high school, actually into seventh grade, I was uh, allowed to participate in Native Youth Olympics. And I was invited to come and participate and they found out that I was really good at the two-foot high kick in seventh grade. And I um, ended up bumping uh, a girl who was uh, in 10th grade <laughs> off that spot. She didn't like me very much for a little while, but she uh, soon became, we soon became friends. And that was my first experience on uh, a team for Native Youth Olympics. And I took first place at state for grades 7th through 12th. Um, and I still, that's definitely one of my fondest memories of competition because I was just so, there were hundreds of people there. And I was this tiny little 7th grader. Because <laughs> um, how, how tall were you at the time, too? Oh, I, in 7th grade? I was probably like 4'10", maybe 4'11", not much <laughs> not much taller than I am now. Um, I think I stopped growing in eighth grade. Um, so I was probably 4'11", in, in, in seventh grade. But you're out there beating 12th graders, so. I, I was, yeah. Um, so that was my first year, my first experience. And then um, I was diagnosed actually with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and sound good for it was no it, it wasn't um so for the next two years i fought um joints that would swell up to two or three times their size and i'd have to get cortisone shots and magically one day it just all disappeared and um i just started competing again when i was in 10th grade and by 10th grade, I wasn't only competing in just the one event. I started competing in multiple events at Native Youth Olympics and then helping, co helping um, other athletes on our teams, on our gnome team, uh, 
train and participate and and be part of the team as well because I didn't need to be the only athlete right. on the team. So there were a couple of times that my coach would come up to me and say, you didn't try very hard on that. I'm like, yes, I did. And <laughs> I was just, you know, it's like I don't need to do all of the events. So I was trying hard enough to let somebody else beat me so they could go to, you know, as part of the team. Right. And I know that other there's a, there's other athletes who do that in other communities as well because they don't need we're not in the games for the notoriety. We aren't in, in them to win the medals. We're in there to build a community, have fun, uh, test ourselves. Um, now, when you get into an open competition, then then you don't have to hold back anything. Oh, the gloves are off. Yeah, at the, that point. the yeah <laughs> the gloves are the gloves are off for. You're still trying your hardest, and you're still coaching other athletes, but you're not trying just hard enough so somebody else can win. Right. Um, because that's an open competition. And our open competitions in Alaska are at World Eskimo in the Olympics. And you have to be 12 years and older to compete in, in that event, which is basically seventh grade. Right. And, uh, but you're competing against other people who are... Around the world. Yeah, around the world that are 30, 40, sometimes 50, depending on what events you're doing. You know, the agility events are... Most of the athletes are between... The good athletes are between 16 and... I'm going to say probably 25 or 26. You get into some of the strength events, um, like the Eskimo stick pull or another game called the arm pull, and then you're competing against uh, people who are usually a lot bigger, and the older folks can compete and be competitive in those events too um, because they're, it's relying mostly on just brute, brute strength. Right. Um, that is the category of athlete I am in now. <laughs> I, I am no longer agile enough to compete in the kicking events, so I trans. I uh, moved into the strength events, and <laughs> and the the uh, there's a game called Indian Stick Pull, where basically you try to take a greased stick out of your opponent's hand. So imagine you're trying to grab a fish by the tail, and this stick is tapered. It's one inch at center, tapered on each end. And it's greased with uh, some type of lard, usually Crisco, we'll say, um, to imitate fish slime. So you have to try to pull that stick away from your opponent, and that's strictly technique. doesn't matter how old, young, big, small you are. If you have the technique to pull a fish out of the water or a fish by the tail, um, you're going to win that event. And it doesn't matter what size your hand is. Um, that game is strictly technique. Got it. So it, it's not really a tug-of-war kind of thing. It's really just who's got the better grip and technique. Okay. Yep, who's got the better grip and technique. So there's, you know, there's different reasons for all of the different games. Um, some of them we just play for fun, too. Um, so from Native Youth Olympics, uh, when I was, who. Uh, I think a junior in high school, I attended my first World Eskimo Indian Olympics. And it was my first trip away by myself to compete in a Native Games competition. 
and my parents sent me up to Fairbanks. They got a hold of the general manager of World Eskimo in the Olympics. Um, her name was Glenda at the time, and I'm still friends with her. <laughs> um, and uh, we could stay up at the university for free. So she picked me up at the airport. She took me to the university, um, introduced me to a couple other athletes that were older, and they basically, she basically said, keep an eye on her, make sure she gets to competition. And uh, we just rode the bus. They'd come and get me and say, time to go. Um, and we would compete until 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning uh, back in those days. And we'd sleep, eat, sleep, <laughs> and compete, and then uh, finally get back to our dorm room and sleep for maybe five or six hours. Then we're back up going to the gym for the next uh, set of preliminary competitions for that day. Um, and then I competed at World Eskimo and the Olympics from 1985 uh, until, well, I've competed every year with the exception of two up until this last 2020 when they had to cancel the games. Right, right. Because um, I moved into that bracket of older, stronger athletes doing the strength events. Um, so I'm still part of that. And as uh, as an athlete and a coach and an official and head official, um, I was also on the board of directors for World Eskimo and the Olympics for quite a few years. Um, and then... Uh, took a step back to give myself a break and let other people um, be a part of that great experience. Um, and uh, I'm the head official now for, I coached Nome and Fairbanks for a while after I graduated from high school for the Native Youth Olympics and then was an official. Now I'm the head official and I'm a coordinator and I teach the games and travel to schools throughout the school district here in Anchorage the Matsu Valley, and then I'm invited with athletes to go to other schools throughout the state. And I've also, because of Native Sports, I've been to Montana. Montana. Um, I was in Washington, D.C. when they broke the ground for the Native American Museum. Um, I've been to Holland uh, three times, Germany. Um, and there's a bunch of other places that a lot of my other friends have gone to demonstrate games and be a part of the games. In 1984, at the Olympics, there was a group of Alaskans that went to Los Angeles and did demonstrations of Native games uh, from World Eskimo and the Olympics. And they also had dancers go down um, for the games. And they were dancing in in the Summer Olympics, in their heavy Ooh. fur coats, yeah. I was in Vegas, you said? In Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Los Angeles Ugh. at the 1984 Olympics. Yeah. And I'm also part of uh, Arctic Winter Games, um, which I had mentioned earlier is a competition of traditional, well, it's actually games from the north, so winter games. So anything that has to do with winter games, um, skiing, ski biathlon, dog mushing, basketball, indoor soccer, um, badminton, um, any kind of sport that you can think of that is played during the winter time. It's a competition held every two years and primarily focused on just youth now. 
Um, there used to be adult athletes in a majority of those events too, but they've pared it down to just youth athletes with the exception of our native sports. So our native sports have adult athletes. And I competed in Arctic Winter Games from 1986 every two years until 2004. Um, and that was my last year doing that. And then the next year I became the head official here in Alaska <laughs> at their Arctic Winter Games down on the Kenai Peninsula Borough uh, in 2006. Um, and then uh, 2008, I could not go for some medical reasons. And then 2010, uh, I was the head official in Grand Prairie for Arctic Winter Games. And 2012, I think we were back in Whitehorse. Okay. Well, sounds like you've, uh, you've definitely competed quite a bit then. Um, I guess kind of looking back over the career then, I mean, I know just regardless of what career it is, there's going to be some setback or some kind of disappointment along the way. And, I mean, I can kind of think back to my cross-country track days. I can certainly think of some big things that would make the highlight reel. Um, <laughs> did you have any big setbacks or, or disappointments maybe along the way? Um, there's one year, and I honestly cannot remember the year at Arctic Winter Games. Um, there was a new game that they had introduced from the Yamal, from the Siberian team that we started doing, I think it was maybe our second or third time competing in what's called the sledge jump. And it's 10 sawhorse type um, sledges they're called but it's 10 in a row and the object is starting at one end you have to jump over all 10 you get to the end you get one jump to turn around within the five seconds that you landed turned around you have to take off again and start the next set so it's a it's like running maybe a marathon I would say but you're jumping. So you're jumping 10 in a row, turn around, do the next 10, turn around, do the next 10, and you get three tries to, to do as many as you'd like. Oh, and so you, you just go until you drop. Then. You go until you drop. Oh, wow. Yep. And the sledges are made so if you fall on them, they break. Right. Um, because it happens. Um, so the first year they did that, the Siberians the the folks from Yamal came and did it and they are jumping I think the women the junior girl jumped like 300 sledges I'm just doing some quick math in my head but that's going to take a while right it takes a <laughs> while so that's 10 sledges that's 10 you know that's 30 30 trips you know across those those 10 the guys jumped over 800 sledges and there were three athletes from the Siberian team um, so of course the next year everybody or the next uh, round of competitions everybody's really excited about okay now we know what we're doing now we can try to do this well we soon discovered after that second year that you wanted to put the sledge jump at the end of the week because the having it on Monday, there were so many athletes that 
I, for one, I strained my ab muscles that day, actually just one side of my ab muscles. If you're familiar with native sports, you need your core muscles for every single event that you do. So that year, we had a two-foot high kick was on Friday. I did the sledge jump on Monday. I still competed in a few of the other events, but I still was not at a point to where I could break the six-foot mark in my two-foot high kick. And it is the only time in my competition life that I took second place in the two-foot high kick. (laughs) I was beaten by... um, who is now one of my oldest and dearest friends, Mika McDonald from Northwest Territories. And um, the year, the competition, the two years before that, I had beat her in her event because she had strained a muscle. So I guess it was just our turn to, to beat each other. <laughs> so that, for me, is one of the most memorable disappointments um, in my traditional Native Games life. Uh, one other and the last one was... I had planned on retiring from Native Sports in 2006 because it was being held here in Alaska. But I was diagnosed with a, a severe ulcerative colitis. It's a bowel disorder. Uh, your colon basically tries to uh, reject itself. And uh, I just could not regain my health fast enough to do that. So I was disappointed that I didn't get to go out in the manner um, that I wanted to in 2006, but I was still the head official at those events. Um, And besides those two really injuries, both of them were because of injuries or health issues. Um, There are no other there's not even anything that I can even think of besides those two events that were a disappointment. Got it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's still rough when it works out that way, though. <laughs> yeah, it is tough. It is tough. I was 34 years old. I had spent enough time competing, was still, um, and I was coaching and officiating at that point, too, so... It was maybe just them telling me it was time for me, <laughs> time for me to go and let somebody else come yeah. on and take the reins. Yeah, giving you a little nudge, but no, that's that's got to be so tough to back away from from competing when you've been doing it just for so long. Yeah, the first couple of Arctic Winter Games and World Eskimo and Indian Olympics following that, it, I, it was I was I'm a spectator or I'm watching them and I'm officiating, and just that over whelming urge to be to still want to be part of that and and knowing there's no way you can do that again but your your brain is telling you one thing and your body is like nope you can't do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> let that let that be someone else yeah, right now. yeah let that be somebody else yeah well i'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people kind of have a struggle going from being the high performance athlete to being a coach so i guess do you did you enjoy competing? Do you enjoy coaching more? I, I know some people have a hard time making that jump, and they might be a great athlete, but sometimes they don't really like coaching, and sometimes the other way around. So I go. love coaching. Okay. I absolutely love it, mostly because of the sport that we're in, because there isn't that high pressure to perform and win and, and beat the next person. It's setting personal goals for yourself and for your athletes and 
having them reach those goal, goals and see that light and spark in their eye and that smile that, oh, I got it. I, I finally got it. And because and, we keep track of, of course, of their goals. Um, but then they get in, you know, in practice, it's a whole nother thing. In practice, <clears throat> some athletes can soar in practice and they get into competition and they just completely blow it. They're so nervous yes. and they just, they, they aren't prepared mentally to do it. So we work on those with the, with the kids and in coaching and maybe start taking them to smaller competitions or bring in athletes that can, we can have a little at home competition. <clears throat> and then you have these athletes that, you know, I was that athlete. I'm like, I could practice as hard as I could, but you put me in a competition and I'm going to go two inches higher, two inches further, four inches further, <coughs> just because of that adrenaline. adrenaline that, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm just built that way. I mean, that's just the way it, my, my brain is, is okay. We're going to do this and we're going to do this at 150% and <coughs> we're going to, we're just, we've got this. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's spoken like a true coach. <laughs> yeah, and watching, you know, it's definitely more rewarding. It's rewarding watching the athletes succeed, definitely, and <clears throat> watching athletes who come in from doing just organized sports, basketball, wrestling, right volleyball and then come into the native sports and their whole outlook on competition and sportsmanship changes and watching them grow from that selfish athlete to a team player is just it's and not only do they do that through their sport but watching them because we are such a small community you get to see them in their personal lives grow in advance as well um so that's another great thing about our our sport is taking the lessons that they learn from competition out into the real world man that's awesome and i mean i hear lots of people talk all the time i mean sports is in kind of an awesome avenue to kind of teach those lessons and those those skills and those characteristics you need to succeed in life and i mean we talk about you know, I, I knew just with coaching cross country and track later on that I could see those characteristics kind of pop up later. But I mean, I feel like there are different characteristics, though, from yeah. what you guys are teaching. <clears throat> so it's so it's just awesome to hear. OK, well, the process is going to be the same. Just the characteristics of what they're, they're going to be walking away with is going to be a little bit different. Yep. Well, that's yep. awesome. So did you find with those students who came in? you know, kind of playing the, the traditional sports and then did the native sports, did they go back and continue with the traditional sports or what was there? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of athletes still do. I mean, in Alaska, <clears throat> um, especially in the rural communities, sports are a way out of the community to get into Anchorage and go shopping. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and see other relatives that aren't in the community. Um, a lot of, for a lot of the athletes, it's their first plane ride ever. Um, well, because a majority of our communities are off 
the road system and you have to fly everywhere. Um, <clears throat> and with social media today, they get to see everything that everybody else has outside of their community and for them to get to experience that out of their community, then they, they want to be in every sport in the, out, especially <laughs> out in the communities. And then when the athletes move into our larger communities, um, there's always the city league basketball programs and volleyball programs still, um, if you can get in with the right people or the call the schools, they have their intramural, intramural, um, at the, uh, at the universities usually. Um, I don't know where they are now with COVID, but uh, I know there were intramurals and there were some Native Games competitions as well. And I've watched people's attitude change also from from that going back into playing organized sports like basketball and volleyball and seeing their a much nicer or a better player overall because of their experience in native sports. Right. I'm really glad you brought that up. Maybe that's the the biggest characteristic or biggest skill they can walk away from with playing them, the native sports versus the, the organized one. Because, I mean, I'm sure you're very familiar with it, but, like, here in the U.S., we kind of have a reputation in the sports world for being very self-centered athletes just, yep. just in general. Um, I mean, they'll talk about it in professional basketball where, as a team, we're not very good sometimes. Yep. But if you have a professional European player, I mean, they have that. They know it's all about the team, the unit, and they're not trying to necessarily be the number one at the sacrifice of the team. Right. Yep. We are a team. Um, our sports, even though they're, a major, they're individual events, it's a team it's a community, and we police each other, too. <laughs> um, so if you come in with a hot head, somebody's going to take you aside and have a talking with you and make you help, help you understand that we don't condone that type of uh, actions, those types of actions or t- those types of attitudes in our sports. We're here to help one another and uh, be family. That's awesome. <laughs> do you guys have to do that often, or is that kind of the kind of the exception? Um, maybe I have to have a chat with somebody once a year, um, and it's only one time, usually. And if it's not me, then I might know somebody who said, "Hey, I had to have a talk with so and so," or I might have an athlete come up to me and say you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. I'm like, well, how about maybe you say this to them to help them, help guide them to the direction that we need to go. So we have some natural-born leaders through that as well, going through that. Good deal. All right. Well, are there any other, I guess, any other things you would like to say about the native sports? Maybe I haven't, haven't asked that you want to talk about or... Um, you know, if you get the opportunity to come to Alaska and want to experience one of these competitions, um, there's competitions usually, well, when we're in person, there's usually competitions in January, February, March, April, 
And then uh, those are our Native Youth Olympics competitions for our juniors and our seniors. And you can also check out some videos online if you want to. Uh, if you go to YouTube and type in NYO or Native Youth Olympics, you'll see some athletes that have recorded themselves or there's some clips of events. And then in July is the World Eskimo Indian Olympics, and that is always held the third Wednesday in July of every year. So no matter what the date is, it always starts the third Wednesday in July, and that's the World Eskimo Indian Olympics, and that's always in Fairbanks, Alaska, with the exception of one year they held it here in, uh, in Anchorage. But World Eskimo Indian Olympics started in 1961, so there's celebrating what 70 70 years yep. 70 years six, so 60 60 years yeah. 60 years 60 years this year um so that's pretty exciting and native youth olympics was cel- celebrating their 50th anniversary and then uh, arctic winter games was also uh established in 1971 or 70. So they were celebrating their 50th anniversary as well in 2020. And all of these sports were, these events were created by people who saw the need to continue these traditional games because they were thought they were being lost through the larger communities. So af- people coming in from the small communities moving into Anchorage and Fairbanks were losing that part of their culture. So these games, these events were created to do that. Arctic Winter Games, a little bit different story, is they were created um, because there were Olympic athletes and then athletes who are a little bit better but not quite good enough to be Olympic athletes. So it gave them a venue to compete at. Now it's just youth, um, and Arctic Winter Games prepares youth for future competitive events for college and whatnot now, with the exception of Arctic sports, uh, Inuit games and Dene games, which are the Indian games. And those just, uh, that's the the big competition for us is Arctic winter games. Gotcha. And all of these, uh, you can see all of these or look up all of these events on uh, the web at... uh, for World Eskimo Indian Olympics, it's weio.org. For Native Youth Olympics, it is citci.org. And for the Arctic Winter Games, it's awg.ca. And there's uh, great resources on the internet as well. If you just type them in, all those events, <laughs> you'll find something pop up for them. Outstanding. All right. Well, you've heard from Hall of Famer Nicole Johnson. I sure hope this has been useful for you, and I sure hope it's um, you guys have learned a lot from this. I know I have. So if you have any further questions, definitely go check out those resources. They'll be in the show notes. And, Nicole, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.